Welcome to Behind the Product, a podcast by SEP, where we believe it takes more than a great idea to make a great product. We've been around for over 30 years, building software that matters more. And we've set out to explore the people, practices, and philosophies to try and capture what's behind great software products. So join us on this journey of conversation with the folks that bring ideas to life. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Behind the Product. As always, I'm your host, Zach Darnell. Joining me again, Chris Schinkel. Chris, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me again. Thank you for joining me again for this convo. We we had a, a great conversation with Ryan Larkham over at High Alpha Innovation. Chris, really quick, for just some quick context, uh, what's your role at SCP? My role at SCP is the Director of Innovation. Interestingly enough, very similar to uh, Ryan's. And I think it led to some great conversation. It did. There was there was really it was really cool to see some of the overlap between the two of you, and just kind of hearing some of the bits of the conversation. What, what were some of your favorite things uh, that you felt like stood out to you in the conversation with Ryan? I loved when Ryan was describing the process from idea to conviction, and he sort of laid out that high level process that he walks customers through. Right? It's it's so context specific, and it's so dependent upon the industry and everything you're working in. But even still, he had like a high level roadmap of where he was walking with customers. And, you know, a lot of the things that we're doing with our customers, which which I thought was really cool, even though he's a little more of big corporate sort of startup space, and we are typically working with more existing products to see the overlap was I thought was really valuable. I really enjoyed that as well. Um, his just his, his experience and just very clearly articulated system of thinking through that space. I really enjoyed that part of the conversation. Chris, what did you think about his concept around innovation theater? I think to use his words, I thought that was really interesting. You know, because of my role at SCP and what I do with customers, a lot of times I'm involved in conversations talking about innovation and what it is and, and how it works. And it, it's just th- this word that has so many different meanings and perspectives. He kind of gave us his definition, but then also talked about this sort of common experience that that him and I have both run into that he titled innovation theater and just loved his uh, perspective and take on that. Yeah. It, it's always interesting when you kind of get into conversations with customers and, or really anybody and buzzwords start kind of flying out and kind of start to peel back the the layers and really get into, okay, what's really going on here? All right. Give us one more favorite part of the conversation before we dive in. Well, one of the things I thought that uh, Ryan was such an, in a great position to comment on was the indie tech scene. We work with a lot of large companies. They've been around, well-established because of his connection with High Alpha, getting to see a lot of the startups you know, what's happened through Salesforce and you know, all of that, VC funding models and, and whatnot. I really appreciated hearing his perspective on the uh, indie tech scene. I think he even said they was very bullish for Indianapolis and just the opportunities and, and what existed here. I just, I loved hearing that as someone who's grown up in Indianapolis and in the city and just his perspective on what Indianapolis has to offer, even more so than what you might find on the East and West Coast and the number of opportunities that exist here. Yeah, he alluded to almost these hidden opportunities here in the Midwest. 
you know, often overlooked. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, hey, man, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Thank you to Ryan. Big shout out there. Thank you for joining us. And I guess we'll uh, dive into the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Joining me for the second time in a row, Mr. Chris Schinkel. How are you, bud? I'm doing great. I'm excited for today. I know. It's going to be a fun one because joining us is Ryan Larkham, a director at High Alpha Innovation. How are you, man? Hey, I'm great. How are you? Doing well. I'm excited for this. You and I caught up a few weeks ago, and then I know you and Chris have not caught up in ages, so I'm excited to be a middleman for connecting two folks that haven't talked in a while. Should be fun for me. Yeah, it's good to be back together. It's really good. So Ryan, quick context for those that don't know who you are and don't know much about High Alpha or High Alpha Innovation. Can you give us the runabout? Tell us a little bit about you and about the business. Sure. I'm a mechanical engineer, industrial designer by background. Love making products that people love. I was lucky enough to transition into business strategy halfway through my early career. Spent the entire time in automotive and industrial. Loved making those products. Felt frustrated, though, that uh, we just didn't have enough of the customer voice in that process. And I was hoping that as a business strategist, I could kind of force that in. People seem to listen to business strategists a lot more than engineers these days. That's true. (laughs) It is, yeah. But from there, moved into tech. Tech just innately understands the opportunity to design with customers in mind. High Alpha was uh, being formed. Uh, we were a venture studio, one of the first ones in the world, and got to set up our studio model, partner with entrepreneurs to walk them through a process of getting from idea to new business. And uh, when we got the investment conviction that we needed, we'd launch those businesses, uh, invest capital, provide shared services, and help those entrepreneurs succeed at scaling their businesses over the next several years. So that's, that's a little on me. High Alpha Innovation spun out of High Alpha as a separate line of business. We identified an opportunity to partner with corporations for the exact same reason. My background in big co innovation recognized that there are just certain areas that corporations can't grow and scale. And uh, usually that's when you have something net new. And so we wanted to take what we had at High Alpha, the venture studio model of launching startups and turn it loose on big co's. So, okay, when we, I'm going to use a buzzword here, when we talk about and label corporate innovation, and for those of you that are just listening to this, I literally air quoted. That is a buzzword. I don't know. what. It, can you define that for us from your perspective? Like, what does that mean to you? So I think about innovation from a portfolio perspective. So innovation, first of all, is the, the creation of net new things that have value that someone will pay for. And across the portfolio, you've got R&D, probably the largest area of the function, right, where the corporation does its own business. And it, increasingly, R&D is focused on fixing stuff that's in the field new product development, and and rarely get into those brand new technologies or new product opportunities. It's becoming more and more inefficient to be able to do that, though, like dollars per output over time. And then uh, the next bucket's M&A, right? You can always buy something new when you need a new business model or to extend your existing business model. And sadly, that's becoming more and more inefficient as well. The valuations are going up, especially on tech companies. You're often betting the entire business on one of these acquisitions. Uh, and then, of course, integration is a whole nother mess, right? I used to be one of those corporate strategists who'd say we'd leverage synergies and then leave it to the dev guys to figure out how you actually mashed it in. And so the, the new, new opportunity for corporate innovation uh, and kind of the smallest portion, really, of the innovation portfolio is for startups, the most robust corporations are thinking about a build by borrow partnership strategy with startups so that they can expand into more of the adjacencies, right? R&D is great for expanding the core business. 
M and A is a near adjacency play. But for the opportunities where corporations really need to be transformative, either through the business model, the technology, or the customers that they access, best way to do that is through startups because of the opportunities that they have to help a corporation learn. That's interesting to me. Can you talk us a little bit about what those relationships could look like? So I'm I'm an entrepreneur. I'm working with. I'm talking to a Bitco about a partnership. What what am I getting out of the exchange here? Is it is it just funding, or is it is there more there to the relationship? There's really three ways I think startups and corporations can work together. Right? So the, the first is commercial. And Bitcoins don't do this really well, by and large. There are some who've really created a, a fabulous platform team that they use to integrate with their corporation. But I mean, essentially, startup comes into the enterprise, wants to sell. Usually that is um, through a POC, right? So they, they partner together to do a proof of concept before they land and expand inside the enterprise. And great IT teams, great commercial teams find a way to kind of do that in a corner of the business that's not disruptive to the bigger business while they test something out. So that's a commercial agreement. And you can just you can just do very successful commercial agreements right with big co's and become increasingly capable over time. The next is investment, right? You big corporations, often with corporate venture capital arms, so a separate investment arm will reach out to startups for the opportunity to do an investment. And often that comes with some kind of strategic request as well, right? That there's a you're going to give us money and you're going to help us get to market, or and you're going to be a customer along the way. And great CVCs have figured out how to both give money and be great strategic investors. But the third is, I think, just building. Right? Corporations have such a knowledge of the things that they need in the world that there is no startup out there to solve for. And they've got capital for them to be able to take those assets and spin them out into a brand new startup that solves an itch that they've been willing to scratch in the world. I think that's a really cool opportunity. So tell me where uh, High Alpha Innovations t- fits there. Is it the last model? I think the first two, by and large, are getting solved slowly over time. We're seeing corporate venture capital arms that have been around for 10 plus years, uh, made it through multiple financial cycles now. And there's a there there, right? Folks know how to do that. Folks do not know how to build brand new startups. But we believe at High Alpha Innovation, 10 years from now, that there will be a model where just like every company has a CDC attached to it, they've got a venture studio attached to them as well so that they can be building new companies. I'm assuming, you know, over the last... how five, six years, however long you guys have been doing this, there's been a number of these examples. Tell me about maybe some of the, I don't know, gnarlier challenges that you've had with working with some of these, I'll use your term, big co. There's a couple of things that keep big co's from really innovating, especially in the adjacencies. So one of it is just knowing how far away from the core business model to place these new opportunities. There's lots of great opportunities inside of big co's, right? Which ones are the right ones to spin out, I think is a really big question that we get a ton. Too close to business strategy, the core business should solve for that in some way or another, right? That's what R&D is there for. That's what M&A is there for. And they have to just go and and solve those needs. Uh, And if someone else tries to do it, right, they're going to pull it into the core because that's, that's what the business needs to be successful. Too far away, and, and folks are like, why are you investing money or time doing this, right? Is, is Coca-Cola a sneaker company, right? Like, why, why are we investing in sneakers? So that, that doesn't make sense either. So there is a sweet spot right in between. And I think identifying that sweet spot is the first kind of challenge. And then once you define it, not letting the core get their hands on it, right? Having a really clear strategy that says, uh, we're creating a net new thing. Well, we need a learning module, right? Which is a startup. Versus we're creating something that just scales our existing business model. Well, we need a scaling module. And, and that's something that should be done inside the business. So that's that's like big challenge number one.
So I'm curious, Ryan, customers come to us a lot of times and they, they're trying to innovate. We hear that word a lot. A lot of times it's in an adjacent area like you described, but they traditionally, because of the way the funding models inside the organization work, they've already had to make a business case. They've already had to identify a problem and solution. They've already had to secure budget. And so while they say they want to learn, search, experiment, whatever the you know words, startup lingo they want to use, they're really not like they, they want to learn, assuming that they're going to produce something of value at the end. If they spend money and learn and produce nothing, that's that's not real interesting or not not acceptable. They'd rather fail traditionally than to do that. I'm just curious when people come to you and you engage, like where are they at and how much do you need to uh, help them rethink the way they fund this type of projects within their organization? It's a really good question, Chris. And and we get them at both ends of the spectrum where you guys get them, where they're like, hey, we've got a business case. There's a team inside running this. We've already put a couple million bucks toward it. It's just not getting the results that we want. And we also got ones where they're like, hey, autonomous vehicles are going to be a thing. We got to figure out what to do with that, right? So top of funnel, bottom of funnel. I, you know, I think that mistake number two in this kind of piece of the conversation is that folks try and fund it out of the PL. Just like capital projects are funded out of capital, this needs to be a capital expense. And, and the reason is, to your point, you don't know what the business model is. When you're building something that's brand new, part of the learning is trying to figure out what a repeatable, scalable business model is. And if you got to put together a two-year PL just to secure funding, you're making up numbers that you don't know. Better to say, we're going to define success based on learning milestones. And we're going to fund you to your next learning milestone the way that a VC does. Do that out of your capital budget. And then when you have something that's repeatable and scalable, well, then you figure out whether it's going to come inside the business and you fund it off the PL again. What have you felt like you guys have had to do from a business to sort of frame yourself uh, so people understand when they come to you uh, what they're asking, right? Like, again, we're framed more as a development partner. And when people come to us, they're ready to start building. And it sort of feels weird to say, well, hang on a second, let's talk about business viability and feasibility and those those types of things. I'm curious things you've had to learn that that's helped frame, you know, your organization so that people come in the right door so to speak. Yeah, it's it's a really good question and something that we're still searching for as we try to define what is the product market fit between VCs, entrepreneurs and corporations. I think where we try to put ourselves is as builders. When you think about the the opportunity, if it's in an adjacency, if it's something that you don't yet know, right, it's far from your experience set. And then specifically for us, because of our investment thesis, if it's B2B SaaS, it's going to be cloud software that sells to an enterprise as a primary customer, then we believe out is better than in all the time, always. And we'll always approach it with that lens. Now, you know, we've done engagements before where we're open-handed on what the other side of that looks like. It could be that you know, through discovery, it's better to be B2C or it's better to be inside the business. But what are we architecting for at the beginning is we say, we're going to start a startup here for these specific reasons. So when you come in and a company hires you, I'm curious what like the team makeup is. If there's sort of like a standard sort of team that you sort of bring into the engagement and then you it expands from there. But is there like a core product team or, or something that you guys tend to a repeatable model that you use across different engagements? Yeah, there's really kind of three pieces to how we go about building startups. The first is discovery. So we, we do a 12-week period with, with an organization to move from top of funnel. What's the opportunity? We take a venture lens to that opportunity. Corporations are really great about understanding the opportunity from their industry subject matter expertise, but really look at it from an investment standpoint. What are the trends that are going to shape this industry in the next 10 years? What are customers' jobs to be done and the ways that those are going to be transformed as a result of those trends? 
And so we take an investor's perspective to figure out where would you put your money if you had to build something new in the space? And we mash it up with what they've got. We come up with a ton of different concepts in that specific space, narrow those down rapidly and get conviction about 10 or so that we think are really transformative and interesting opportunities where the corporation can leverage itself. And uh, we do that with a group of folks who look like business designers. So it's a relatively new term in the world. I think IDEO coined it. But the idea being that the design, capital D, is, is a series of intentional choices, not just about the product or the value prop, but also about the revenue model and about the resourcing model. How do you make money doing this? And then how do you resource this startup to be successful? And we think about kind of all pieces of the design at that early stage with that organization. Once we get conviction around a business model that you could go about pitching, then you've got launch where we, we stand it up as a startup. The, the folks who, who do that sort of work look a lot more like entrepreneurs, folks who have background in sales, customer success, product. And then we also bring supporting services, kind of piece three, finance, HR, talent, design, marketing to help them scale their businesses successfully after we know where those businesses are headed. I didn't realize you guys did kind of the, the full spectrum of staffing. Yeah. So, I mean, over time, it's less and less us and more and more startups. Uh, we want to partner with the corporation through that, but then ultimately you spin out a startup that's uh, purposeful to go go address the pain point that they came to. I'm curious really quick, how often are some of those early employees of the new venture existing employees from Bitco or are they you know net new entrepreneurs that you're finding that maybe have some experience in the vertical? Yeah. And a little bit of both. You know, We find that really great entrepreneurs love to be involved at the earliest stage possible because if we make too many decisions without them, it's just no fun. Great entrepreneurs are scrappy, love rolling up their sleeves, love making decisions early. The earliest folks who are involved, to your point, are the corporation. And, and we, we work early to find entrepreneurial talent inside that organization, as well as subject matter experts who know the space really well. What we've generally found is that really great leadership teams consist of a couple different personas. And one of those personas is often the CEO, but that individual is great at fundraising, great at scaling a venture-backed software startup. And those talent rarely exist in sort of big coast. Sometimes they do, but rarely. And so we're often bringing that type of an entrepreneur in from the outside. However, there's another class of folks who are either builders or customer-focused people. And those two personas could exist inside the corporations. Folks who either know the customer, their pain points, and their ability to either sell or support those folks really well, or who know how to build a product rapidly uh, in a venture growth model with an agile framework to be able to grow and scale alongside customers. And sometimes those come from the corporation, and sometimes those come from outside entrepreneurs as well. Do you find that some of these uh, customers that you're working with are digitally native, or oftentimes this is their first digital product? They have no idea what they're doing there in that space. We've worked totally across the spectrum. Um, we've worked with traditional industrials uh, who've recently launched digital arms. And we've worked with some of the best, most progressive firms out there who have their own internal studios and CBCs and builder arms as well. So totally across the spectrum, which is it's really fascinating to watch the whole arc of how the industry is developing. I bet. Well, yeah. And I'd be curious, you know, if you're working with somebody that maybe has more knowledge and experience with the way that you typically work versus a client that it's like, Hey, show me the way, you know, be, be my Miyagi. I would imagine in one way, working with somebody that understands or has a lot of experience is more challenging because there's probably more opinions there. No, no real question there. Just an observation. <laughs> I think really great corporate partners though, like do bring a couple things to the table. And I think part of it is like making sure that we've got kind of the peanut butter and chocolate that fit together and taste real good when you put them together. Great corporate partners 
are able to bring their subject matter expertise. They can reach deep into the business and understand the problem, their customers, so that we can reach through them to better understand the real pain points and value props on the other side, and their capital and talent, right? So really it's ideas, talent, and capital. And if the corporation can bring those through, which takes a lot of work in the context of a big code, right? To be able to get those, we can do the business design, we can do the launching, we can do the entrepreneurial kind of building side of things. Brian, what kind of advice you might give to some of our customers or people who approach us? And I didn't coin this term, but I've been using it a lot lately, talking about the messy middle, which is this spot between the business has an idea. We think there's this opportunity that exists. And I have teams that are ready to go execute. And how do I go from these spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations to like actionable backlog or work items that we can build and deploy, how do I navigate that messy middle? I'm curious from your experience, what what advice you might give or what you've learned over the years about some of those challenges of navigating that space. I heard a quote recently, and gosh, I wish I was able to attribute it, um, was in Amazon or one of the other successful tech co's, which was, you know, if you want something to fail, make it somebody's part-time job. I think too often corporations shelve these innovation things in the corner and say, hey, let's just, you know, push that forward, make it a lunch project. And then in the same breath, turn around and look at us and say, make sure that you're not a drag on the business. The worst thing you can do is put these things on somebody's plate as a part-time job. That is the ultimate drag on the business. So first of all, I think having these explicitly spun out in an area of the business where we are going to process through those ideas rapidly. And then pairing that with a process, ideally with learning milestones involved. You know, when we think about learning milestones just from idea to conviction, we're, we're thinking about have we identified the problem really well? Is it a big opportunity space from a market perspective? But more importantly, do we know who the customer is and what their priority job to be done is? And do we have that with you know a large amount of research from one-on-one interviews through ethnography as well as some some research and surveys? You know, when you understand the problem really well, then you can move to solutioning. You know, from a solution perspective, do we understand the MVP? Not the big solution. Everybody wants to paint what the magic bullet is. It's what's the first product that's going to create value out of the gate that people are going to love and use and beg for you not to take away. And then when you know what the MVP is, how are you going to monetize that? Inside corporations, you've got tons of options. It could be a loss leader. It could be a product that, that drives stickiness for customers. It doesn't necessarily have to be profitable, but there needs to be a clear understanding of what the unit of value is that's being contributed to the customer so that you can monetize that unit of value in a meaningful way, whether it's per head, per platform, per transaction, per seat, whatever. So you'd be really clear on those things. And when you kind of get those three clicks done, then you can look at it more clear-eyed and say, where's the best place to build this business? That's fantastic. I just need to send this link to like four or five of our clients we're working with. I think they struggle, like you said, making it a part-time job. They struggle with how they think about funding these. And oftentimes the funding part of the organization or the culture influence how they think about moving forward, right? Sort of learning versus building to learn versus building to earn. People are built to build to earn. They don't know how to do the the learn part. Uh, What you just described there in terms of problem, solutioning, MVP, understanding the unit value and monetizing it. I, I just think tons of people struggle with that. I'm sorry, if it failed, Chris, at any stage along the way, there are assets then that go inside the corporation, right? If you have a refined version of a customer persona, that's something that they can take back and say, hey, we spent two months and $25,000 learning. 
here's a persona now that you can take to the marketing department. You can sell our core products to better, right? This, this isn't a great startup idea though. And to your point, like better understanding what the learning milestones are rather than your point, the earning milestones. I mean, these businesses aren't interesting to big co's for five to seven years before they clear the 10, 50, $100 million mark. Right. You sort of made an interesting point there. I'm curious how much if when you're sort of brought into a corporation and you're trying to do this and, and move it outside and sort of set up this, you know, this sort of startup, do people inside feel like marketing say, well, that's our job or sales is like, that's, that's where we can like sort of feel like they're getting kind of cut out or, or losing some control. How often does that happen? And what, what how do you navigate that? It's a good question. And, and again, this comes back to what do you need to scale this company, right? If scale is the problem, you kind of know what the opportunity is, you know how to access those customers, then the scaled, efficient resources of the corporation ought to be brought to bear, right? Keep it close to the company. That is sales job. That is marketing's job, right? They have the ability to do those things. If, however, it's so far adjacent that it's a new set of customers that sales has never reached before or, or you know, is kind of two steps away down the value chain, well, yes, yeah, sales could be capable to doing that, but they actually don't have the business autonomy to go and do that, right? They will always be pulled back to serving their, their initial customers. And so it's better to be out. And so thing number three, we talked about mistakes. Mistake number three is to confuse the idea of a heavyweight versus a lightweight team. Heavyweight teams are purpose-built, right? They sit in a specific organization. They have one of each person in a function and uh, they report to one CEO. They're not matrixed organizations. And so when you want to learn, building a heavyweight team is an important thing. You stick them in the corner and you let them go figure it out completely without the boundaries of process and learnings from the big co. If those things were useful, you don't need a heavyweight team, right? You stick it in the business, you create a matrix lightweight team to go solve those problems. But more likely, they don't know, right? And so they have to go sell externally to brand new customers, brand new technology. You'd do better to stick those people in a corner and let them go without all of the weight, if you will, of process and rigor and, and that sort of thing that's inherited. Just sort of switching gears, and I'm, I'm going to ask a question because I want to get it in before we run out of time. Selfishly, I like to ask this of people, but tell me something that, that in the last year, two years, whatever else, a book or something that you've read that's been particularly meaningful or, or you would recommend. This may be one of those that's not going to fit in the podcast well, because I've got like a weird perspective on reading books. Like I think the learning economy is amazing. And honestly, I think the best thing you can do is get a book like dollar per value learned 30 bucks, right? You, you learn a brand new thing, incredibly useful. I, I have learned a ton more from experience these days than I've ever learned from books. And so I've actually not been reading books at all. I have been reading long form medium posts. I think there's some amazing folks out there who are thinking about corporate innovation that I've been following along with. And so maybe that's that's more of it. I think some of the, the most influential books to our area are Eric Ries's, you know, Lean Startup. There's another book on corporate innovation that got published recently by a startup studio, uh, which is kind of about creating a funnel from one end of an idea to the other end of a business that I think is really good kind of tactically. I forget the author's name. I can send it to you afterwards. But yeah, I've been following along with really great venture builders and folks who are kind of triangulating these problems from a couple different directions more than I've actually been been reading a ton. Maybe uh, some other folks on my team are good at that though. No, I appreciate that insight. I like finding new people to follow. I don't know, for some reason during the during this pandemic, I have been afforded less reading time. I normally try to read about a book or two a month and having more article-based or, or web followings has been much easier to consume. I don't know what it is. So I'm, you know, I'm thinking a little tactically right now, you know, I'm curious, 
I, I was gonna I was gonna ask about you know are there specific verticals that you tend to see more opportunities within, or is it more here's a set of markers across all industries that you know tends to uh, line up with uh, great opportunities. It sounds like it's more the former. Really, any industry can be disrupted with something new with tangential innovation. Are there like the the five questions that you ask, you know, a big code to try to identify if they're man, yes, okay, in the next ten years there's going to be this really cool, you know, bleeding edge opportunity here. Let's go tackle that. Are there specific markers within that? I think where we see the most kind of innovation occurring right now is on the financial and insurance side. But I think that actually has more to do with the, the the current state of the economy, right? When the economy tanked, although there was a ton of access to free capital kind of prior to that, free capital still the light. Those two sectors, though, kept that. They, they, you know, right, they have a ton of, of cash uh, available to them, and they were looking for new ways to invest in it. And so as a result, we've seen a pretty big fintech and suretech boom occurring out there. But to your point, the, the other side of the pandemic has caused massive disruptions in uh, the adoption of, of new distribution models, new supply chain models, new uh, consumer purchasing models that I'm certain is going to create a whole nother wave of opportunity inside of. But with respect to you know where I think all industries are being disrupted, and by and large, I think most traditional businesses are so far behind in their ability to iterate on their business model that there's opportunity everywhere. So I think what we're looking for is our corporations ready, so to speak, to be able to embrace that and really move forward because they've got executive willingness, a specific set of funds they've set aside to go about doing this, the right people in governance to be able to execute. And you know that's a, a really good marker for what success looks like. I mean, that's a really good point. I never really thought about it at that macro view that really the state of the world, everything's up for anything's up for grabs right now. S- sticking with the kind of the tactical line of thinking, do you have like a specific toolbox? I walk in with this canvas, this framework, this system, when you typically walk in with this kind of stuff, again, not not sharing secret sauce here. I'm just kind of curious if you've got kind of a common tool bag that you go to. I feel like everybody I talk to has, I'm a jobs to be done guy. I'm, you know, I'm a business model ink guy. I'm a, you know, whatever. Do you, do you have one of those? We do. And I think, well, I think most consultancies tend to think about the idea of like trademarking a framework as kind of the way in which they differentiate. Like we like to think about ourselves as as being successful when we launch a new startup. There's so many opportunities for innovation out there and corporations by and large are reaching for the ones that look shiny and pretty, but ultimately result in PowerPoints that hold doors open. And that kind of innovation theater is really what I believe is holding them back. So Yes, yes, we do, but it's a messy process to get there, is what I'd say. We've kind of mashed up the best of a whole bunch of worlds. But what great looks like and what we're ultimately architecting for is an investable business. And so when you think about like what makes for an investable business at a pre-seed stage where it's literally just an idea, we talked about that the problem, and we are jobs to be done, folks, right? That that comes from our inner site heritage. I'm not knocking it, trust me. <laughs> a good revenue model. How do you get hundred K uh, in ARR immediately? as well as a good understanding of the long-term value of the market. And then a purpose-built team. Uh, you know, At the early stage, you know, the people that you have involved and their ability to grow and scale a team while searching for a problem and a business uh, market is really the best asset that you can contribute right out of the gate. So team idea capital is really what we're architecting for. I feel like that's very on brand for us too. We, we don't have some like secret set of, here's the tool set and the, the, the framework that we've created we really have a toolbox and we learn from other people in the industry and 
read a lot of books and articles and, you know, try to find what works best given the, the set of circumstances or the constraints within the people, the organization, uh, the problem that we're tackling. And I feel like that's the most successful piece because if your framework is the thing that you're selling or offering, I feel like it's kind of limiting when you're really looking at the outcomes, which is what I feel like you're hitting at there, Ryan, as the outcome of we're looking at the successful financial viability of this business, not the fact that we ran some awesome workshop. I feel like that's what I'm hearing from you. And I I love that. Agree. And of course, I think perhaps what we've got in common too is it's underpinned by a modern understanding of how software companies are built and grown. You guys build on agile. You're probably using the, the you know the, the most progressive types of front end dev, right? Uh, we use common sets of coding languages and tech stack. You know those things almost go unsaid, so to speak, and yet really are you can't take it for granted, right? Uh, we've met a lot of corporations who are teaching what basic product management looks like. We see time and time again uh, going into corporations where you know it's marketing partnering with IT, and and there's a lack of sort of true product thinking, especially modern product thinking, I would say, in, you know, in a digital mindset world, you know, a lot of these companies are traditionally building physical products and goods. And they're, they're trying to think about, okay, now how do I monetize something in this digital space? You know, we've been doing this stuff and giving it away, but there's got to be a way to monetize this or shift to, to an adjacent sort of market. And they, they just lack some of that, you said, modern product. I mean, they're still, they're, they're still trying to learn and grow in the area of just how to think about products today. And again, like that's another case for why out is a great case. You can hire in the tech, the, the talent to augment those capabilities and learn and grow. I think that the mistake that I see a lot of corporations making is they think about education almost as the primary job to be done, not the secondary job to be done. They're like, well, we want our whole workforce to be innovative. Teach us to be innovative, guys. And I mean, yes, eventually over time, as you transform your business model, the organization will be innovative. But actually for now, in order for this little company to exist in the world and be successful, technically the only people that need to be innovative are the bodies in that room and the board that oversees them. And it takes long enough just to transform the hearts and minds of the board, let alone the internal stakeholders. And then over time, right, the change in mindset does, you know, accrete to the greater business. But I think when you start with like, you know, educate my entire workforce first, get us all up to date on agile and product management by way of right doing some some innovation work with us. Man, that's a tall order. And I think it's the wrong order to think about it. You're thinking about it at scale instead of starting with an MVP and scaling. I'm curious, Ryan, in your experience, a lot of the companies you work with, where where, where are they at? Like, I know, I feel like High Alpha just played such a huge role in the tech scene within the Indianapolis area and Indiana, Midwest. I don't know if, if a lot of the, the opportunities that you find are in, in this area or this sort of region of the country, or is it just it really all over or your perspective on how Indianapolis has grown and changed in the last five years? Oh, gosh. Th- those are like three totally great questions all rolled into one. I mean, first, yeah, High Alpha loves Indianapolis, has benefited massively from the tech community that supported Exact Target and then High Alpha over time and and then all of our portfolio companies. So, you know, we continue to be, you know, incredibly bullish on the future of Indianapolis as a tech community and on the talent and, and the companies that can get built here. We have experimented increasingly with launching companies elsewhere. And I think what's really interesting is our experience in building capital efficient businesses here in the Midwest has led us to look at other 
tier two cities as they're being referred to, right? But not New York, Boston, and San Francisco with respect to where venture capital is going, because there's a huge opportunity in those you know overlooked markets where talent is just as well distributed and opportunity is as well, but funding is not. And so we've been building building a lot of businesses in those areas. With respect to where High Alpha Innovation has been investing, we've got folks that we're working with on both coasts and in the Midwest and uh, increasingly internationally, which is kind of exciting. And I think there is a huge opportunity right, across the world for innovation uh, at, at this type of level to be occurring. And I think, honestly, COVID's really kind of pushed that forward, right? The, the ability to have interactions like we're having today digitally, to not have to be in the room to shape thinking and to launch teams that are actually fully remote and distributed rather than just remote in a different city is changing the way that we're thinking about what it means to be launching brand new companies along the way. So a lot of new thought there, right? We're, we're not really yet sure, right? What does the future look like for tech? Is every company a fully distributed workforce? And we're beginning to see that happen. But I think there is there there are certainly some very special things to the ability to you know walk up and down the stairs, right, and, and partner with your companies who are who are in the same room, and to be able to do it inside of really important community environments where you've got assets like corporate partners, customers, accelerators, funding sources that that all sit in one specific area. So continue to be really bullish on the future of Indianapolis specifically, because I think we've been doing a lot of things here as a community that, that will make tech thrive. So I'm going to ask you to read your crystal ball here for a minute. Because, you know, uh, it's funny you say tier two. I, I My wife was in hospitality for a number of years and uh, educated me on what a tier two city means. What do you think... Do you think indie will ever become a tier one tech market? Do you think we're ever going to be seen in the same, you know, in the same breath as Silicon Valley, hopefully the positive side of Silicon Valley, Raleigh, uh, some of the larger markets that are more publicly well known? Or do you think we're always going to be seen as kind of just, oh, you're a Midwest town that have some tech companies? Well, a, a couple of things to think about there. First is, I think the Midwest is completely overlooked as an opportunity source, right? Not just for great talents and opportunities, but some of the areas that we've been partnering with our corporate partners on here are areas that, because they're so nuanced to what industrial companies have been facing, just aren't even noticed out on the coast, right? The opportunity to think about how you change order management from fax to digital, the way that you that trucking and goods are moved from place to place, and all of which is done on paper. And these are problems that San Francisco, which lives you know decades in the future with drone delivery models, just doesn't even notice. And so as a result, funding's just not going there huge overlooked opportunities in trillion dollar markets, you know, and so you hear Andreessen Horowitz talking about the idea of building in response to these types of opportunities and seeking the next trillion dollar markets. Supply chain is one of them. And man, we definitely know supply chain out here in the Midwest. And if our corporate partners can be as progressive as they need to be to kind of disrupt themselves, I think they've got a better shot at transforming the industry than those on the coast do. But that's a big if. And that's one of the bets that we're making is that we can help the incumbents move faster than the disruptors can go. So I think that's that's a piece of why we're betting on the Midwest. You know, with respect to how folks see us, I think that's a totally different question entirely, right? Venture capitalists, for better or worse, invest in what they know. And as a result, the networks and the the hierarchy will exist in as much as the venture capitalists continue to believe that those types of hubs are kind of the de facto places where innovation can occur. We're hoping to disrupt that model. 
That's really cool. I'm excited about where the indie market is going. I've been doing this not as long as you two, but you know, for a little while now. And I, I absolutely love indie. I've had a number of people like that have lived here and and left to go work in San Francisco, and that's fine. I'm not going anywhere. I love it here. So I, I hope we continue to grow and just build an awesome community more than anything. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been a really really fun conversation for me. I love hearing about all the stuff that you guys have going on. I, I hope we get to talk again in the future. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. It's been a ton of fun sharing about what we do and um, and hearing about what y'all are doing as well. I mean, having SCP here in uh, greater Indianapolis is just great for pushing forward tech and the opportunities for founders to be able to bring their products to market. I'm Zach Darnell, and this is Behind the Product, an original podcast by SCP. You can find more about us at scp.com slash podcast and subscribe wherever you get your shows. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.